All that is baloney. <laughs> I claimed the fame was I taught in Stern College for many years. And uh, I was asked by Mrs. Shoshana Shepherd to teach again on Zoom. So um, I was supposed to start, I guess, in January, coming out of retirement for the uh, fourth time. <laughs> really. I taught here at the very beginning, in the 70s, into the 80s, and I retired. I promised Dean Karen Baker that if my daughters come to Stern, I would come back and teach. So I have three daughters, so I came back once. Second time, third time, and I retired to good. I thought when my youngest daughter graduated quite a number of years ago. But now, because of Zoom, I feel a certain responsibility to um, share some Torah, learning the Shabbos, which I taught for many years here, so it'll be good to be back, although it'll be on Zoom. I plan to come the first day. I just can't, in my stage of life, I can't run back and forth as I used to. But uh, I'll come, hope to come the first day to meet the students, and then all the rest will be on Zoom. Okay, that's my introduction. The rest is just forget about it. But first I want to share with you, before I get to my main point, which I'll get to in terms of uh, Hanukkah, to learn the words of Chazal, I want to share with you the Hanukkah message that I wrote in my shul. Yes, it was announced on the Rabbi of Israel of Riverdale. So you know how it works in our shul. Some shuls have a bulletin every day, every week. You know, uh, five times a year. Shoshana, Hanukkah, Purim, Pesach, Shalos. Five bulletins a year. And it's expected of the rabbi to write a message every single time. I've written messages now hundreds of times over all these years. And every year has to be something a little bit new. It's a little bit, and I sometimes repeat myself without realizing it. This time I'm to write about the following thing, which I'll share with you. And I began by saying that Hanukkah is perhaps the most popular Jewish holiday. Understandably so. There are no restrictions. Restrictions. No restrictions. No texts. You have to sit there for half an hour night, but day it's a pain in the neck. Kind of nothing. All they do, they serve sweet and oily foods, and they like candles. It's, it's, a, it's the most popular holiday of all. You know, in America, it has the additional benefit of paralleling a different December holiday in this country, which I'll not, of course, name. In Eretz Israel, and another benefit. You understand, in Eretz Israel, where we have a, an army that's vastly outnumbered. Yeah, Hashem has blessed them with amazing successes over these years. So of course you understand that the victory of the Maccabees, of Gibor Miyad Chalosh and Rabbi Miyad Miyatin, it resonates. It resonates. Fine. So I was in Karen Biyavna as a student in this 1966-67. It was the year that I was there when we had the amazing victory of the Six-Day War against overwhelming odds and incredible, uh, incredibly outnumbered and outgunned. Hashem saved us miraculously. But around that time, the year I was there before, there was a man, his name was Shmuel Schnitzer. He was a columnist, I believe it was from Ariv. Ariv, as you know, I think is still, I think, no? 
very popular Israeli general, you know, secular newspaper. It's, it's still very popular, I think so. It's like the number one paper, might have been, have been for a long time since then. Um, what was he writing about? Something fascinating. You know, writes to the general Israeli public, mostly secular. You all are keeping and celebrating Hanukkah. Everyone here. Everyone, 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 everyone. But if you were alive at the time of the Hanukkah miracle, which side would you have been on? You see, Hanukkah was not only a fight between Jews and non-Jews. Oh, no. Read history books. It was a devout few Jews against large numbers of what we call Hellenist Jews. What the word Hellenist means? Hellenist Greece. They had become assimilated into Greek culture and society. You know what they did? They embraced the values and the culture of Greek society. That's why they're called Hellenists. What about a secular Jew in Israel today? Which side would he be on? Great question. I thought it was striking. Point of the question. That was in the 60s. Now, whoo, 2021. Wow. A lot of Hanukkah have passed in the end. But you know, there are a lot of incredible changes in society and culture in these intervening years. Let's see, about approximately 55 years, a lot of years. Used to be, when I was your age, growing up in this country, there was a, I'll call it, a biblical, to give the expression, Judeo-Christian value system. It was based on duties, what are your obligations? It was based on what we'll call family values. These were the prevailing attitudes that existed way back then. But now what we call today the post-modern society it has regressed into what I call a nouveau Greek culture based on hedonism, sensual pleasures, an unlimited right of personal choice and identity. And as this has happened for these two generations of Anet, a troubling phenomenon has emerged. This new culture has become so dominant, as I'm sure you as college students are aware, and the prevailing cultural ideas which contravene centuries, centuries of universally accepted values of morality and decency. They dominate the intellectual community, effectively silencing meaningful opposition, if you know what I mean. And as a result, part of the Jewish intellectually inclined population, including some observant Jews, especially youngsters, have been adversely influenced. I'm sure you have friends in various colleges. I hope not here, but I wouldn't bet on it either. 
certainly in the sake of the colleges. And I must tell you, sadly, and I'm sure you probably know this too, it started from college campuses, it spread to high schools, even junior high schools, including a certain what we call, forgive me, modern orthodox schools of this nature, where unfortunately, the prevailing cultural ideas have insinuated themselves into the hearts and minds of people who are coming from observant homes, Shabbos Shabbos, and yet these ideas have penetrated into their consciousness. And therefore I go back to the same question that Shmuel Schnitzer asked in the 1960s. I ask you, I mean you sitting in the room, you, today's youngsters, who are coming from, we'll call them Shomer Shabbos homes, homes where they keep the Torah and the mitzvahs, I'm afraid the same question has to be asked. Today's culture war, basically a replay, it's a replay of that war which existed between the culture of Greek, Greek culture, and then Hellenist culture, and against the devout Jews. Those Hellenists adopted the permissiveness of Greek culture. Same question. On which side would you be? Since I can't answer the question for everybody, I will say it's summation that today's dangerous situation demands that we strengthen our allegiance to Torah values as well as Torah practices and together with our families resist the powerful pull of societal forces to abandon it. They're pulling at us. They're saying, you know, the Torah is not, it's not correct, Hashem is not right. How can the Torah say this? How can the Torah say that? We know that modern society knows better, post-modern society knows better. How can it be? Da-da-da-da-da. You've all, you've all heard this. You may have even heard it in these walls. I don't, I don't, no, I don't mean these walls, this room. The building's walls. People tell me they hear things on classes in this college. And it's an uptown equivalent, which are against Torah values. Influenced by secular values, no question about it. And therefore, we come at the Hanukkah, a couple of weeks, we have to echo the rallying cry of Matisio. It's only three words. Mi Hashem Eli. If you want to be on Hashem's side, you have to strengthen your... Matisio did wild things. We would say today he's a fanatic, fundamentalist. What kinds of names he applied in? But Mila Shamilai. That's why Eladi came to the Hanukkah. No? But which side are you on? You're about the Seattle side or the Hellenist side? Keep that in mind. That's my Hanukkah message from my shul. I wanted to share with the wonderful students here in this base message. That's not why I came to speak to can't speak about a Medrash Tanchuma, which doesn't exist in this place, Medrash. <laughs> so I have to say it to you by heart. Can you forgive me? I just assumed it was here, so I didn't bring it. The Medrash Tanchuma is found in Tarshas Noso. And you can look it up, you can probably get on it. I probably get on my own computer, my own smartphone, but smartphone is also part of the whole fight. 
And you may remember from last year, it's already almost a year we were, since we read it, half a year, that they rattle off 12 times the same sukkah over and over and over and over again. The first day is Nachshem and Aminadah, the second day is Salah Mansur, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zavulun, Reuven, Shimon, God, first six days. Seventh day, Ephraim. Eighth day, Menashe. All of a sudden, the Benish Nachuma wakes up and says, Whoa! This is the phraseology. I can't say it's verbatim, but it's close. <laughs> a person shouldn't say, I'm not going to keep Hanukkah. Why should I keep Hanukkah? It's not in the Torah. Says the Benish Nachuma. No, don't say that. Why not? Why not? Because we see in this, these two psukim, the seventh day of Ephraim and the eighth day of we see that Yaakov Avinu, way back when in Parshas Vayechi, put Ephraim before Menashe, even though the birth order was different, as you know. And guess what? The Rabboni Shalom himself gave a stamp of approval to what Yaakov Avinu did. When? Parshas Naso. He tells Moshe Rabbeinu, the seventh day is Ephraim, eighth day is Menashe. Ah! So we see that Hashem Himself endorses the innovations of Chachmei Yisrael, beginning with the back of Yaakov Avinu. So by the same token, you should accept the innovation of Chachmei Yisrael when they introduce the holiday of Hanukkah. Got it? Everyone understand what I just said? Got it? Everyone has it? Yeah. That's in Tanchum. The question becomes, you know, there are a lot of rabbinic laws. Why did the rabbis choose Hanukkah the seventh day, the eighth day? What's it all about? Must be a deeper message over here. So I'd like to share with you the deeper message as I understand it. It goes back all the way to Parshas Vayechid, which we'll read in a few weeks, right after Hanukkah. We see that Yaakov Avinu approached by Yosef and his two sons. What does he do? He puts his right hand on the head of Ephraim, who's the younger one. His left hand, Benasha, who's the older one. Sikel es Yadav, he crossed his hands with Asher to Bechot. Gives him the famous bracha, HaMalach HaGom. Yosef is upset. But here Rabbi Enoch took his father's hand, take it off Ephraim's head, put him on Asher's head. This is the Bechor, put your right hand on my Bechor's head. Yaakov refuses. What does he say? He says, I know my son, Yosef. Menashe will be great. He'll be great. However, 
his younger brother will be even greater. And his, his children will be known throughout the world. You get the famous bracha, and a fry before Menashe. Everyone knows this, right? You all know this? You all know Chumash? What's the depth? So we always know the Rashi. Rashi says, What does it mean that Menashe will be great? Osid Gidon Lotzeis Mimenu. Menashe's greatest descendant will be Gidon. You ever learn Shoftim by Gidon? Very brave warrior. But Ephraim, who's going to come from him? Yeshua Benun. Yeshua Benun, going to teach Torah. Therefore, what? You have to understand that Ephraim and Menashe, aside from being flesh and blood human beings, are also paradigms. They represent something. What does Ephraim represent? Another Rashi at the beginning of Ayachi. Someone told Yosef, the father is sick. Who told Yosef? Who? Who? Says Rashi. Ephraim, because he was Rogel Lifneyako Betalmud. He was sitting in Goshen learning Torah with his, with his grandfather, Yaakov. He got sick. He ran to tell his father Yosef. So therefore, Ephraim was a full-time learner. I know you should do him, that's what they are. A full-time learner. A full-time learner? It's going to be, depends who you are. Who was Menashe? Menashe is referred to back two weeks before that in Parshas Miketz, which is a partial as it happens, we always read, almost, almost, always read on Hanukkah. What happens? The Kamtayo said the brothers. So, what happens? The brothers start to argue with each other. When Yosef accuses them, what do you say? Say, Gavalt. Gavalt. What happened? What happened? They talk to each other. That's our fault. Da 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 he was a court interpreter. Yosef didn't reveal himself. They thought he was an Egyptian. Who was the Melitz? Who was the interpreter? Says Rashi, Zemenashe Benah. How would Menashe have known Hebrew? They didn't know who Menashe was. They didn't know he was a son. He was an interpreter. Some, uh, some Israeli who ended up, you know, in Los Angeles. Oh, not Los Angeles. In, uh, <laughs> in, in Mitzrayim. And he knows Hebrew. Maybe an interpreter. So Menashe wasn't a full-time learner in Eretz Goshen with his grandfather Yaakov. He was a, a diplomat, politician with his father Yosef. 
in, in Mitzrayim proper. So there are two paradigms. They represent two types of individuals. All great. Not surprisingly, the great descendant of Menashe's Gidon, a warrior, after all, Menashe himself is a, again, a politician, a diplomat, and a court interpreter, a man of the world. So it's, it's appropriate that his greatest descendant be a man of the war. Ephraim, full time learner, his descendant is Yeshua Benun. The full-time learner himself. He got a couple of fights. But primarily he was known as the one Moshe Kibbutz Torah we seen him as early Yeshua. It all fits in. But I believe it goes further than that. And I think that's going to be the connection to the Tanchuma with which we began. Go back to the Rashi in Parshas Vayechi. The two personalities are Gidon and Yoshua, respectively, representing Menashe and Ephraim, respectively. Who learned Sefer Shoftim here? So you know about Gidon. Oh, he was a very brave warrior, but he was also a very innovative tactician. You think that the only people outnumbered were Sahal and the Maccabees. Gideon was also outnumbered. Read the Pesukim. Ah, oh, you know, he had 300 soldiers against tens of thousands. What did he do? He made what I call the modern day Davidka. Did anybody even realize the Kika Davidka? You know, is it still there? Kika Davidka? You know what Davidka is? A bluff. They had no arms. They agreed, you know, that's what happened. 1948, we had no arms. Fighting against the, they, had, they made, made a lot of noise at the Bitka. Oh, the Arabs ran away. They got it from Gino. Gino had, had nothing. It, it, if you wanted, what do you do? Everyone got a chauffeur, right? Everyone got a, a torch. They got a barrel. They made no woo. Put a sound and light show. Everybody ran away. Very innovative. Ooh. What does Yeshua represent? Moshe Kibel Torah Mesinai Mesar Yeshua. Yeshua is the opposite of innovation. Yeshua is transmission. Rabbis have taught us, play Moshe Kipnei Chama, play Yeshua Kipnei Levana. What tells us in Baba Basra. doesn't just mean that Moshe was greater. It means Yeshua was trying to simply be a reflection of the radiance of Moshe Rabbeinu as the moon reflects the sun. Towards where, while Gidon was all about innovation, Yeshua was all about preservation. Coming from two opposite angles. And the truth is, once again, it fits in perfectly with the paradigms, with what they were doing. If you're a man of the world, or a woman of the world, a person of the world, you have to be ready to innovate, to change, to forget the old and start the new. In all areas of human endeavor, 
worldly endeavor. I'll give you an example. This, I'm, I'm using modern, modern example. Just imagine that the press came to cover the amazing battle feats of Kiron's army. And they write it up. What's it called? I think it's called the London School of Strategic Studies, some of that. Where they have all the military campaigns documented. Oh, they'll say, this guy pulled a fast one. He fooled the enemy. This. And there's another war the next year against the same enemy. And get all oh, of the same, oh, try it again. He'll have a chauffeur, he'll have a, a picture, he'll have a torch. What would happen? Read this out. You can fool me once, you can fool me twice. Same strategy. Sadly, sadly, fighting the last war is always a calamity, and it happened in our times. I really mean it in our times. I mentioned you before, I was privileged to be in Israel in 1967. Uh, you don't know what's going on, you read the history books. No way you could, you could begin to feel what was going on then. Everyone was so frightened. It was shortly after the Holocaust, the people were more scared in America than in Israel. They were going to come and wipe us out. They threatened to kill us all. It was a horror. There was three weeks of unbearable tension. I was in it. I was there. I was in, I was in Karabiyat. I was there. Every day it gets worse. Because they blockaded us on the, down south and they threatened to kill us and march into Tel Aviv and destroy us and throw us into the sea. Every day it gets worse. After three weeks, was so unbearable that Hashem gave Israel the wisdom to do something incredible. They launched an early morning surprise attack on the Egyptian Air Force and knocked them all out on the ground. On the ground. They flew beneath the radar. They had spies and which, which were real planes, which were fake planes. They didn't waste bombs on the fake planes and they made went back and came back one more time, boom! There were almost no planes left. Great. So Israel dominated the skies over the Sinai. And then, although there were that tremendous amount of tanks, but we just, knock them down from the top. Not that there weren't casualties, there were hundreds of casualties. I believe, if I remember from that six-day war, there were 600 and something casualties which is a terrible amount of people who lost. But still, the amazing military victory was really three days, basically. In three days, they were in the Suez Canal and the Jordan River. It's a in the flows. The sixth day, they went up for the Golan. You know what? Six years later, there were reports of mass Egyptian troops in the Suez Canal. It's documented. They knew about it. You know what I think was happening? I can't be sure it wasn't in the military command center. They were a little too cocky. What's going to happen already? They'll cross the Suez Canal with their tanks? No problemo. We'll send our planes. We'll be dominant from the air and it'll be the that's it, be over. We'll, just, we'll knock them out one, two, three. That's the Yom Kippur War. What was a miscalculation? 
has cost thousands of holy Jewish lives. One miscalculation. One thing they didn't know. They didn't know that the Russians had armed the Egyptians with surface-to-air heat-seeking missiles. It was a new invention. No matter. Because, you know, you have to have pretty good aim to be able to knock down a plane from high, but if you have a heat-seeking missile, you don't have any aim at all. You just send it up, and the heat, it just, boom. It took the Yiddish Akep a couple of weeks to figure out how to overcome that. They had what they called flares. So when the heat signals come to the plane, they send out a flare, and the, and the missile go to the flare, and leave it the, in those two, three weeks, we lost thousands of Jewish lives. I can't even think about it. But we fought the last war. But it's not only in war that you require constant innovation. Let's say politics. So we say Menashe was a politician sitting in a court. Can you imagine? Think about it. A, a man comes... 2021, you know, he returns from, I don't know, uh, how many years ago, 70 years ago, was that, 1951, did I get it right? Right? 1951, comes back. Remember all those, those shelters which still exist from the Cold War, nuclear threat from, the, from, the, from Russia, and it's, it's a, and I remember the Berlin Wall, Remember the Cold War? What? What happened? Oh, you know that the Soviet Empire collapsed and the Berlin was taken down that many years ago? Wow. So you have to readjust the whole political... Everything, everything, all politics is always changing. And what about making a living? Some of you may have done your family tree. Maybe your great-grandfather lives in Europe or maybe you migrated to America. How many of you and your brothers are interested in earning a living the same way as the great-grandfather did? Oh, the elder Seder. Woo, 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 woo. Maybe a big tzaddik. But he maybe made a living with a, maybe a grocery store. Maybe he was a tailor, a shoemaker. Uh, no one's interested in doing that anymore. New professions. Well, let's get a little closer to home. I'll, I'll just, for, just, for the, just for the sake of the fact. See this thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure by now it's probably outdated. But I remember when the first computers were introduced, Univac was called. Put the room like this. A room like this. I have chips, which are microchips. I can't even afford to find I don't know what they're talking about either. So all the technology of 10 years ago is obsolete. Gotta change. That's always been new. Always new. Always new. I keep, I think one of the most innovative companies is called Apple. I call it Apple. And they have that Apple Watch and Apple. They, I don't know what the Apples are doing, but they're, they're, everything always... New, brand new, new, and old throughout the old one, the new one. It's, uh, it's, that's the world. That's not surprising. That's what it is. By Giron, it said, Lake Mekochacha, Zev, Oshatas, Yisrael. Go with your unique qualities. 
No one before ever pulled this Davidic scent off. You pulled it off? Good. Don't repeat it again. Oh no. It's why you just massacred, it, slaughtered. That's in the world of this world. Worldly pursuits, whether it be the military, the political, the economic, you name it. Technological, always new. However, when it came to the parallel, namely Yeshua, that was a contrast, right? It's exactly the opposite. We don't want anything new. We want the old. The old. But Yeshua had said when the um, succession to Moshe Rabbeinu came up in Sefer Vamidbar, so Moshe Rabbeinu wanted maybe one of his sons to take over at least part of his, his kingdom, etc., etc., so, Rashi quotes from Chazal. Take Yeshua ben Why Yeshua ben Why? Chazal say, No tzartena yochal period. Because he was always trying to follow Moshe Rabbeinu in every which way. To preserve, not to innovate. To keep things going. That is the way things go in the spiritual world. As much as possible, to keep the old time religion. If one asks me, this idea is found in the very names of Menashe and Ephraim. In their very names. Which are also found in the Parsha of Mikates, which you read on the Hanukkah. Menashe is born and named. Why? Kinashani Elohim Eskol Amali Vieskol Beisavim. What does that mean? The key word, of course, is Nashani. That's Menasha. In the Shoresh of Nashani. What does Nashani mean? Ugla says, Anshiani. He made me forget. He made me forget. Simple translation of Nashani. I was able to forget all the Tsaras that I had. Oh, what Tsaras did he have? Oh, boy. Terrible, terrible Tsaras. They have to rebuild himself. Nashani. Some say Nashani relates to what we're going to read this kind of Shabbos. Gid Hanosha. Means it moved. Dislocated. It moved. It moved on from Beisavi to somehow be successful in Mitzrayim. What is the second son called? Ephraim. Kifrani Elokim Be'eretz Anyi. Motion pre, right? Multiply. Motion pre, a fruit. Not an Apple computer, which is always new, but an Apple. The Apple I had, I had an Apple for lunch today. 
I really did. I kid you not. They say an apple takes the doctor away. The apple I ate is the great grandson of the apple of Ghanaian. It wasn't engineered ge- genetically, so I now said on Macintosh. The Macintosh apple probably was in Ghanaian somewhere. So I the great grandson, eh? a couple of greats in between. Same thing. I want to add something which I found remarkable. There is a, um, on this pasuk, Ephraim, Shkora Ephraim, the Das Tekenim Yibali Atosus, which is printed, in the, this you can't find there, it's the back of any Mikoros Kedolos, said, you know what it means? It means, Afer times two. But Avraham Avinu it says, "Vanochi inu ofar ba efer." And by Yitzchak it says that Afro shall Yitzchak munach al mizbeach tovim. That Yitzchak ashes, it's the ashes of the isle, the ikundat of Yitzchak's ashes. I was there before Hashem. Rashi comments on Parshas Vayera and Parshas Luchukosai. That's a fry. He has a kasha. How can the Das Kenim say something against the Pesach he's on? Here it says, Ephraim Elohim, right? Lashon Pri, fruits. And he says, it becomes Lashon A for ashes. What's going on over here? Got it? Here's my answer. Ephraim Elohim refers, of course, to biological reproduction, like a fruit. But that's not what Yosef Atzadik wanted. He wanted his sons to follow in the footsteps of his, of his grandfather Yitzchak, great grandfather Avraham Avinu. Both refer to as Afer. So he called his kid Ephraim. Of course, the shot the Puskins from Lush and Pre, fruit. But I want the fruit to be the same like the apple I had for lunch today. Delicious. Different kind of apple. Macintosh, whatever it is, a sweet apple. So, therefore, not just any pre, it's a pre which is named after Yitzhak Avinu and Avram Avinu, following the footsteps of their illustrious ancestors. As a matter of fact, one could interpret the famous puzzle which we alluded to earlier in this way. You all know it. You all know the Pasuk. Everyone here knows the Pasuk. Amal, you can sing it. Amalach ha-go'el osim b'kora b'recha sanor b'korevem shmi v'shem ha-vosaya Avraham b'yitzchok. I have the following suggestion. Of course, shmi is Yaakov Avinu speaking. So perhaps it's referring to Menashe and Ephraim. Shmi, the shame of Yaakov. Sure, Menashe. Nashani Elohim is called Amalim, is called Beis Avi. When the, the Menashe is a reference to Yaakov Avinu, Yosef's father. The second one is named Ephraim. The shame of Osaya Avrami Yitzchak, that they're both called Eifer. Could be an allusion to their very names. But Yaakov Avinu is blessing Menashe and Ephraim with. Okay. So far, so good. Let's go back to the Tanchum. Back to Chanan. 
So Yaakov Avinu placed the Ephraim before Menashe. Because Ephraim is Torah, pure Torah. And Menashe is worldly pursuits. We give a child a brochure, we want to have both. We call it Torah Mada. He should have Torah, like Ephraim, and worldly pursuit success like Menashe. Both, both. But Yosef is Ephraim with name Menashe. Torah comes before Adam. Fine. When was this change endorsed by Kodesh Baruch himself? Then the see. The seventh day is Ephraim, and the eighth day is Menashe. Says the Medrash Tanchum. A person shouldn't say, I'm not going to keep Hanukkah. Not in the Bible, some rabbinic innovation. I'm not bound by rabbinic innovation. I suspect reformists tampering with the Holy Torah, making up their own rules and regulations. Isn't that the Torah that I know? Mm. Says the Medrash, don't say that. Why not? Because Yaakov Avinu placed Ephraim before Menashe and the Rabona Shalom endorsed it. Here in the seventh day is Ephraim, eighth is Menashe. So too, you must follow the words of the Chachamim when they tell you they have to keep Chalik. What's that all about? Here's the answer. We are not in favor of innovation for its own sake. No. No. We only have innovation in worldly pursuits, as you mentioned at great length, and in certain limited cases, when the wise men of the generation decide we have to do something innovative, because that's what the time demands, then and only then, then and only then, do we embrace and endorse innovation. Said the Medrash Tanachum. You think, why should I keep Hanukkah as an innovation of the rabbis? You better believe that when rabbis speak, we're talking about rabbis who are universally recognized as the Torah leaders of the generation, you better follow. Because when Yaakov spoke, the Bolshev himself followed. You put a frame before Menashe. If Hashem can follow Yaakov Avinu, you can follow the Chachmei HaMesorah, which do is Chanukah. However, it's only Chachmei HaMesorah. They know when we are required to innovate and change things. And it's, this license is given to a precious few, and they have to evaluate and reevaluate what fights have been won already, what fights have been lost already, and where is the battlefront? You know, the Chazon Ish, the greatest leader of his time. So when he was in Bnei Barak, they taught all the classes in Hebrew. The people of Yerushalayim came to complain to him. It's against the Messorah. We only teach in Yiddish. The Chazanish understood in Bnei Brak when there were people growing up in what they call the Yeshiva Chadash, not in the, in the old precincts of the old city or similar Meisharim, etc. They didn't know Yiddish; they didn't Hebrew. That you're fighting a battle from a generation ago. Now we got to teach in Hebrew. 
200 years ago, the Chassam Sofa said, you're not allowed to teach or preach in any other language but Yiddish. Because the Reform was speaking in German and etc., etc. I'm talking to you, I'm not talking. Yiddish. The Chassam Sofa would be critical of me. Probably would be. But what can I say? That, that battle is good. That's an old battle. You know, when the, when the battlefront moves, you're, you're fighting the wrong place. You get slaughtered. You have to know where, where the front is. So the Chachmi Amisora understood you got to introduce Chanukah. Such an amazing miracle happened. It's a lesson for all generations. You know, Hillel made a prusbul. You know, the, the, the Reform Rabbi, oh, we're like Hillel. Hillel was a god in Tzadikadah. You were a Reform Rabbi. You have no standing. Hillel made a prusbul. We can drive on Shabbos and Shul. Obvious, right? It's close together. So we've had innovations, no question about it. You know, in Germany, the rabbis wore those funny uh, garments, which are almost copied from the Goyim. And people said, why? But they knew that Rav Hirsch and others, they knew it. They knew yeah, if you didn't do that, they wouldn't get the attention of the people. That was, can't help it. Can't help it. You know, 100 years ago, there's a fight about whether women are allowed to vote. Rav Cook opposed. The famous Rav Cook that everyone looks up to, he wouldn't let you vote. I kid you not. Because where he came from, he was an Ish Kodesh. Women have different roles. There's no one that says women. Even, even Satma tells the women to vote. When they vote. <laughs> they vote in municipal elections. Down, it's down in the state, and the women vote too. Best of my knowledge, I'm pretty sure. Things change. The Holy Chavetz Chaim is like what we're sitting here today, because he made a change with Sarah Schneer, with the Beis Yaakov. Women have to learn Torah, which he explains. In the olden years, it wasn't that way. It was a different society. Women were protected first by their parents, then by their husbands, and they could insert the communities. Now, said the Chavetz Chaim, read what he said. Look inside. The women have actually learned to read and write. Which they did not have done before. They were illiterate. They learned to read and write. You better teach them some Torah. Otherwise they're going to be in trouble. And what do you do when you get the PhD? <laughs> so things change. They change in one direction, change in another direction. Remember, innovation is something which with, with which we are blessed when guided by Chachmi HaMesorah. Some of the most recent innovations in the area of women were, you know, oh, we do this, because we're found in the sense of Sarah Shnira. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sarah Shnira, before she did anything, went to the Bells of Eva, that was a family's Bells of family, and the way the story goes, that really happened, I can't pr- promise you that she went with her brother, was sure that the Rebbe would knock it down. And the Rebbe supposedly said two words, Mazel Lebroch. And it's that those two words changed the whole, the whole world. Then she went to the Gareb, and Chavetz Chaim, afterwards. Things change. So when I say to these people, have all their newfangled innovations for women, I say, do me a favor, there's a Bells of Heaven now, we're sitting in Mishalayim. Go to him. There's a Gary Rabbi Yishlam. There are even two now. Go, go to him. 
you want your yeshivish? Want to go to the Chabad Chaim? Let's go to Rav Moshe, go to Rav Yashiv, and I'll go to today. I don't know we don't have such great people. Well, go, look. Go to Rav Zalman. It's hard to talk today because we're so dwarfed from these, you know, Yosemite. We don't have the great people of, of yesterday. But they're great people today also, both in America and Holy Land. Great, the Dole Torah. Go to them. Not go, because they may say no. <laughs> That's dangerous. It's dangerous. Much more to be said about these kinds of things, but that's not my main topic. I just want to give you the, the overarching view of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is an innovation, absolutely. Introduced by the Chachmeh and the Sorah, based on their understanding of what has to be made new. The default position is nothing is new. The rabbis in Germany used to sign their names, Shomer Mishmeres HaKodesh. May it preserve the holy preserve. That's the rabbi's job. Yeah, in order to do that, I have to innovate here and change there sometimes. But my, my attitude is to preserve that which is holy. Whatever is needed to innovate new things in order to preserve that which is holy, great. If you innovate to follow the spirit of the times, which is spoke at the beginning of my presentation, all the modern kinds of things, the way of thinking, that's not so good. I wish each and every one of you that the lesson that we spoke about today should penetrate, all of you should say, Be Lashem Elai. Have a happy time. <laughs>